0: whether somebody likes my art or not you know whether they think this painting you know that i did is is good or not i can engage them in a conversation about the backstory of it of where i was how i saw that how i was inspired and oh my gosh this this space station that we've been flying as this international community for over 20 years and all of the work that we're doing there that is ultimately about improving life on earth. And here's why you should care. And they walk away with the app on their phone, spot the station because they now want <laughs> to know more. They want to know more. they made some personal connection to it. And I think that's what's so great about art is there's, it, it's, it's a universal communicator in some way. We can, we can talk to anybody about anything if we're using art as a, as a platform to do that.
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together, in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, You'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to com. What comes to mind when you hear the word astronaut? I bet you think nerd or maybe the slightly politer form whiz kid. And imagine someone who went to a big-name university or two, has an aura of cool bordering on stony, and is as disciplined as a robot. I've never heard anyone say they associated astronaut with musician or artist, but quite a lot of astronauts are one or both of those. On the artistic front, Apollo 11 pilot Mike Collins took up painting after he retired, and produced some lovely images of the landscape around his Florida home. And moonwalker Alan Bean became a hugely successful commercial artist, specializing in, of course, moonscapes. My guest today is another engineer-turned-askerot astronaut is also an artist. Nicole Stott stands out from those predecessors not only by being a woman, but by virtue of being the first artist to paint while in orbit. She took her watercolors with her to the International Space Station and rendered some of the spectacular views she had of Earth in really creative and meaningful ways. She is now retired from NASA, but as you'll hear, art and the Earth are both central to her ongoing work. She's very active with the Space for Art Foundation, for example, which aims to unite a planetary community of children through the awe and wonder of space exploration and the healing power of art. Check out the fabulous painted spacesuit she created with paintings done by children fighting cancer. It's front and center on the spaceforartfoundations.org website. Nicole's unique path to earning her astronaut wings and living in outer space can remind us all that life's journeys are rarely linear and not usually easy for very long. And also that hard work and persistence are often rewarded with surprisingly good results. I hope you'll be as inspired as I am by her devotion to art and her vision for how it can connect and heal people, and that you'll get fresh motivation to care for the environment from her passion about this precious planet we inhabit. So let's get started.
0: Nicole, so great to talk with you again. You too. I'm still having like just really wonderful memories of Space Fest. Yeah, <laughs> That was my first time out
1: there in Tucson back in July, which, of course, is a rather silly time to have a meeting in Tucson, yeah. but uh, it was a lovely setting and a really interesting crowd. Yep, I agree. Yeah, very fun. But most of all, it was a pretty fun multi-astronaut reunion, which I don't get to all that many of them. It was very fun to just visit with people as people after all those years.
0: It is. And, you know, I think that even more than our, like, official astronaut reunions, there, there's more opportunity there for us to actually, I don't know if it's in the, you know, if it's just the rides to and from the airport or the, you know, sitting at a table next to each other or whatever it is, but there seems to be even more opportunity there to mix with each other, to communicate and to see people that you wouldn't normally like, you know, find your way to because they weren't the ones you knew or something. I mean, I think it's it's a really, and, and then you're surrounded by <laughs>
1: Incredible. Yeah, I think the big astronaut reunions, <laughs> everyone sort of resorts to their cliques, their classes yeah. or their crews. And at least I found much less regaling each other with our own space stories at the Space Fest gatherings. Yeah. It really was like just being friends together yeah. and talking about lots of things that were going on in lives. Uh, and the bigger astronaut reunions somehow seem to be the, you know, reliving our glorious old days. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we awesome? Yeah. Aren't we awesome? Yeah. Oh, well. (laughs) But um, once upon a time, there was a little girl named Nicole, who, you know, was just growing up in Florida. I'm curious, you know, it is said that if you watch a child about age three and four play, that you can learn a lot about what their essential talents are, and where they're likely to bend the arc of their life. What would we have seen if we were watching young Nicole
0: play at age three, four? Wow. I think, well, I probably would have been playing with my sister, who's a year younger than I am, Shelly, and and we wouldn't necessarily been playing with the same stuff. We just would have been together, you know, playing. And that likely would have been outside <laughs> or outside at the local airport where, I mean, that was, you know, growing up. My memories of playing and being out and doing things kind of start with that and really are, I think, impacted by that, being at this airport. What was the draw to the airport? Was there a parental interest or was it your interest? <laughs> Absolutely. My, and I, you know, I look back and I credit you know, this whole inspiration thing. I credit my parents who shared what they loved with us, right? You know, I don't know if they were doing it purposely to say, oh, we hope Nicole loves flying or or ballet or whatever, whatever it might be, but just, they just shared what they loved with us. And if we were going to be together as a family, we would need to be out at the airport because that was where my dad was going to be working, building on flying small airplanes. And I think that just got in my blood that way. But I have these memories too, of being with my sister, with other kids out at the airport and chasing damsel flies or just playing in the you know in the grass you know the fields and there'd be picnic benches and then you'd be surrounded by airplanes under little you know rusty metal hangers and stuff and everybody was talking flying and and every now and then you'd get the chance to fly too which was really <laughs> really a, like hey maybe i can go flying too do you remember how old you were when you got your first airplane ride you know, probably in that time frame, because my dad ha- always was like working on a plane, like a biplane, a, a, a Stardust or two or a Skybolt or something like that. And then he would partner with some of his friends out at the airport and they'd have a little four seat or something or other. And we would do family trips in that as well. I mean, I remember going all the way to Vermont one year, you know, on a trip. Wow. And we were little, you know, strapped into the back. <laughs> Off we go. Yeah, And so just memories of being in the air and not, I guess, not really associating with it how old I was, but not knowing a time when we weren't doing that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you were growing up in Florida, right? Uh, How far from Cape Canaveral at the time, Kennedy Space Center now, where that would have been? in the Mercury and Gemini time frame, How far away was all of that from you?
0: Uh, it was about the same as it is right now, about 150 miles. I okay. grew up in Clearwater, Florida, which is just up the road from where I am right now. And yeah, there was kind of an aura of that, you know, going on that whole thing. I think my first real memory of the space stuff though, was, was probably Apollo timeframe you know, sitting in front of the black and white TV with my parents watching that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and they were excited by it, too. And when you're little like that, I think you realize stuff like that is extraordinary, even when you're little.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really, I remember very vividly having a sense of the world is changing in some way, when a human being steps on the moon. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So uh, were you also artistic
0: as a child? I guess so. I I loved putting things together, taking things apart. I liked, uh, I guess, yeah, I liked building things. My mom uh, did a really good job of of sharing what she enjoyed that way. You know, that was like 60s, 70s. So, macrame, hooked rugs, pottery days and stuff. Okay, yeah. And, you know, she would involve uh, my sister and I in that kind of thing. And then she made sure that it was because of her that I would get to the ballet lesson or the softball practice or, you know, the other kinds of, of things that, you know, that kids are doing and art and creativity crafting just were, were kind of part of that. Just
1: normal part of that. That's interesting. So you head off through, uh, after high school to college, were you a stellar student (laughs) in high school and the whiz kid or what was academics like for
0: you? No, I was, I was absolutely not the whiz kid. I did. Okay. You know, I mean, I did all right, but I, I I think back, I'm like, man, what if I had had really good study habits or in high school, how much better could I have done? I think we question ourselves that way sometimes, mm-hmm. but I did, I did okay. I mean, I did well enough to, you know, pursue what I was wanting to per- pursue, which quite honestly, Kathy at the time when I was graduating from high school, I didn't even know if I was going to go to college. It was hmm. just one of these like, well, you know, I, my friends are going off to college. And, and maybe maybe it's because the week before my 16th birthday, my dad was killed in a small airplane crash. Right. And, oh, so, dear. you know, there was that whole dynamic in our family that was going on. Oh, yeah. That. And. I don't know. As a family, we've never really discussed this kind of this college thing. What do you what do you do? There was I had no pressure on me to do it, but I was fully supported. I mean, my mom was awesome. Just supported it. And yeah, and I can really take it back to, Wow, well, I love flying. I want to know how things fly. What do you study? If you want to know how things fly, oh, I learned about this aeronautical engineering thing. that. Honestly, if somebody had told me how difficult aeronautical engineering is, I might not have done <laughs> it. I mean, I really, I was oblivious. It was just, oh, yeah what you do to learn these things? Okay, I'll go off and do that. So your dad's crash didn't put
1: you off flying? I mean, some people that might have been, you know, the bar comes down and
0: leave it behind. Uh, it didn't. It certainly made me question things, I think. And I think it's perhaps why there was more a desire to know how things fly than was this overarching oh I absolutely have to fly in airplanes myself I mean I wanted to do that there's no doubt I loved flying I wanted to fly but I really had this this kind of need to want to know how they fly and I think it might it might have played into what might have caused that stall in that airplane and Why did it happen? You know, weirdly perhaps, but no, I knew he loved it. My mom, we all knew this was something this man just loved. And I guarantee you, on that day when he went out, he was loving it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, life takes turns. It is weird. (laughs) Yep. But I understand
1: you started at St. Petersburg College in aviation administration. Yeah. And
0: that, again, There was any master plan. Right. <laughs> it was just I knew I, I knew I also wanted to, to earn my private pilot's license. Okay. as part of all this. And and really and truly, I probably wasn't ready m- maturity wise. And I mentioned that study habit thing. I really didn't have the whole study habit thing down. I didn't know I didn't have it down, but I really didn't have <laughs> it down when I graduated from high school. And I discovered this program at the local community because St. Petersburg Junior College at the time. And it was aviation administration it was kind of a aviation business degree introductory business degree but you could earn your private pilot's license in a very structured way through that program at pie at st pete clearwater airport control tower you know all of that, that that made sense if you really wanted to continue to fly and it was awesome. It, w- it was probably one of the best things I ever did. And then all those classes that yeah. you take at the beginning of school, they all rolled right into the, the engineering program as well. And that, the
1: engineering is what you did in Embry-Riddle, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then you followed that with another degree in engineering management. I'm not sure I know at all what engineering management <laughs> is about.
0: <laughs> I know. I've managed engineers, but I'm still not sure I know what that content would be. But what's the management of engineering? Yeah, <laughs> so really, I, I think the best way to describe it is that it, it's it, it's an industrial engineering degree. It's about the 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 processes, the ways of bringing engineering to life. I think the logistics, the project management, the I don't know, just the the things that you might not have built into an aeronautical engineering degree. Okay. And you know Jay Honeycutt, right? Yes. You know Jay. A a mutual NASA friend. Yes, absolutely. The one of, I mean, my second dad, I will say. Just incredible human. And when he came to the Kennedy Space Center, that's when, I don't know, I was there a year or two, and they had hired a bunch of young engineers to come in uh, when we were getting back to flight after Challenger.
1: So the Challenger explosion in 1986, so it's 1988-ish time frame. Yep. Yep.
0: And Jay comes in to manage, to be the director of uh, shuttle operations at the time, and that's where I was working. And he was, I think he was very influential in all these young people starting, coming in. Mm -hmm. Um, He was also very influential in this engineering management program, where he and a couple others basically choreographed, like defined this package of a program that they wanted for all these young engineers to have so that they could really and truly do do the job that engineers in a lot of ways in operations in particular at Kennedy Space Center did for those programs, which was how do you get a shuttle from the landing site back onto the launch pad and ready to fly and all those things in
1: between. All the sequences, all the phases, which things have to come first. And so on. And so, getting yeah. that kind of giving you guys who were trained in the equations and sort of the hands on mechanical aspects in part, then to also know what the choreography needed to be, what the phasing needed to be. So, you kind of see the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose he was equipping you or helping to ensure that there was a cadre of young engineers that now had the toolkit to rise up and become the more senior yeah both for your own career advancement and so the
0: workforce at Kennedy Space Center had bench strength, yeah, absolutely. it was it was a really, i mean, it was an enlightened kind of thing to do because I don't think it had happened before, really, with you know, with the engineers coming in um, over the years working. and 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 with the engineering focus being primarily technical to some degree, but with the with any of these vehicle programs, you actually are having to manage the program of. Yeah, vehicle to fly. And that was bigger than just the technical aspects of it. So I am so thankful for that, because it really, I think it just kind of took me, uh, you know, up a couple notches in being prepared to do a lot of other things as well.
1: Yeah. So that was, um, you sort of glossed quickly past um, a really (laughs) fascinating phase of things that you and I share in common. And that is a space shuttle would land, ideally on the big runway at the Kennedy Space Flight Center. And a fancy astronaut crew would get out, and a bunch of engineers from the Kennedy Space Center would get into the vehicle and attach it to a, a tractor, basically, and tow it to the main industrial work area at the Space Center into this ginormous hangar that was called the, the OPF, the Orbiter Processing Facility. And then all sorts of platforms and ladders and diving boards, you, a whole building skeleton would be built around the outside and inside of the shuttle, and it would be crawling with little ants called engineers for months and months and months while everything was cleaned up and tidied up and refurbished and turned back around into the state it needed to be in to go launch again. And then you'd tip it up on its tail and attach it to the boosters and take it out to the launch pad. And that's what you were in the middle of, right?
0: Yeah. And I... I am so thankful for that experience. That, for me, was over a period of about 10 years. And I got to see everything from being in the convoy van, as the convoy commander on the runway, helping coordinate all of those activities with all those engineers and support people to help get the crews off the vehicle. And then, like you said, get it back to the big hangar, got to be in the big hangar, got to be at that ginormous building, the vertical assembly building, and launch control out at the pad it was it was like there was this really beautiful way to move across all of the experience of getting a space shuttle ready to fly by just kind of every couple years moving to a new place within that that overall organization yeah yeah and not having I mean I, I watched some of my friends you know who had engineering degrees they were out you know in the commercial world i guess the private industry and and even some supporting space companies as well and for them to get that that diversity of experience to meet all of the people and see all of what was going on within even their world they had to leave their company and go move to another company to get uh, you know another kind of piece of that experience yeah and i just felt so fortunate and with with people like jay Honeycutt and tip Talone and Mike McCulley, when he came through and was working in operations, and and some of these Bob Seek, these incredible folks that that knew that somehow knew that we needed to get to to have the experience across all of it to really be, you know, the best that we could be.
1: Yeah, it was very enlightened management because I think you're right. In a private sector company, you're kind of a a, a certain peg in a certain slot, and that's what we need you to do. And yeah, they don't seem to. Most companies don't seem to quite appreciate the value of diversifying the skill set of their folks. So you're 10 plus years at the Cape, at Kennedy Space Center, doing that kind of work. You then end up shifting to Houston, not yet in an astronaut role, right? but in a sort of helping astronauts know how to fly role. Tell me about
0: that. Yeah, well, that was actually that, that whole shift from KSC or Kennedy Space Center to Johnson Space Center in Houston was really at the point where I was. Wow, could this astronaut thing be possible for me? Because you
1: would have met a lot of astronauts. as crews. As oh, yeah. op- you may well have worked on one of my flights either. I think I did. I think Hubble, I did. Discovery and, for Hubble or yep. Atlantis for the Atlas One payload in ni- 1990, 1992. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And in awe of you. <laughs> I'll just say. I mean, I'll little just tell did you, you know. Oh, no, you know, we've met each other now, though, right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely, and it was cool because, I mean, I'd watched the whole moon landing thing, right, as a kid, I was, was in awe of that as well, this idea that humans are not just in airplanes off the planet, but on the moon or circling the earth on space shuttles and doing really in- incredible things, and no one ever told me I couldn't do it, right? I'm so thankful for that, that nobody said, oh, Nikki, you know, your hair's brown, or you're a girl, or whatever it is that, you know, would be this reason why I couldn't consider doing that. But I had the internal voice. I had a lot of self doubt in me about it. I always thought, oh, that even through the entire time working at Kennedy Space Center and seeing what astronauts do, I was like, wow, you know, that's what other special people get to do. Ah. Why would they ever pick me? I haven't done anything that, you know, but it was that time at, at Kennedy that. As I was watching you guys prepare for flights and inter- interface with the, the spaceships and things, and get the chance to talk to you in these briefings that we do before launch, I started to see, I'm like, wow, you know, an astronaut's job, like 99.9% of an astronaut's job is not flying in space. Right. That's right. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, man, as best I could tell, you know, the, the math or whatever, I was like, You know, about 80 percent of it seems to be a lot like what I'm already doing as a NASA engineer. And that gave me at least the motivation to go talk to people like Jay and TIP and others and say, hey, what do you think about this astronaut thing? Could I you think I could consider that? And they were amazing. They, the, you know, they didn't say, oh, Nicole, you'd make the best astronaut there ever was, you know, and try to encourage me that way, though they might think that now. I don't know. <laughs> um, I'd like to think so. And they didn't discourage me either, right? They didn't give the usual thing you'll hear sometimes of, oh, you know, thousands of people apply for that. Yeah, the odds uh, are long. You can if you want, But it's a really long shot kind of thing that if they had said any words like that, that doubt in me would have just like bubbled up again. And I would have. I would have done nothing. Huh. But they just said, Nicole, and back in the olden days, you had to do this: pick up the pen and fill out the application. Yep, that's what they said. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> am I clueless?" And like, "Ah, yeah." And it was like they gave me permission to do the the one thing we have control of in that whole process, right? Is deciding so to fill apply out the application. Yep. That's exactly and I hug right. them and thank them every time I see them.
1: You know, as you know well, it is absolutely true the odds are very long. Yeah. But it's also absolutely true the odds are only zero
0: <laughs> if you don't apply. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's incredible. I mean, I I really thought, okay, even then, I thought, oh, I'll fill out the application, still don't stand a chance, all that. Was very fortunate and likely with their support to get an interview the first time.
1: Which is, by the way, for those on the line, that's a big deal. It is. Just getting the interview anyway, ever. Because <laughs> there will typical numbers for our class. It was like 9,000 applicants. Yeah. Sometimes it's been as high as 15 or so thousand, mm-hmm. out of which maybe 200 to get an interview. Yeah. So it is a seriously big deal if you get yeah. actually physically invited to go to Houston and interview in the astronaut
0: selection process. Yeah. And And one of the things I always tell people about that, because I, I I'm sure you have this happen too, Kathy, is that I'll get requests from people I might have met one time, obscurely somewhere, you know to be a reference for them, right? And I get I get why they're asking. I get it. But I think you're absolutely doing a disservice to yourself if you do that. If you just reach out to somebody because they're an astronaut or they have some high level position in NASA or you think they can influence the the decision making. Because it, I never would have felt comfortable asking Jay Honeycutt for a reference if I didn't know that he knew me and that he might know me better than I knew myself in some ways, right? And that he knew a lot about what uh, NASA really needed in astronauts and what yep. the job takes, and he would not lie on your behalf. He'd be truthful. No, and that he would be the best kind of reference you can have, right? right? Because they know you. they They'll be honest about you. And those are the people you should be putting on your on your right. forum, um, not seeking out the ones you think will just look good. But did that first interview? Went through that process. Oh my gosh! I was like, you know, these twenty people I was with. Uh, I said, okay, enjoy this, Nippy, because <laughs> that's a, that I is exactly what I did. <laughs> I looked around myself. I was I was like, okay gratitude be thankful you are here these are really cool people that you're getting to meet and and then to get introduced to you know amy and all the folks in flight med and you know the different places around the center that are these places that are supporting in the behind the scenes way just lifting everything up and but these people i'm looking i'm like okay you know and it wasn't a self-doubt thing it was just a reality check of wow every single person that i'm here with is stupendous is outstanding is extraordinary and should be probably selected before i <laughs> you know and they're on the cutting edge of whatever they're doing and you know all of these things and just meet them and enjoy it and and i didn't get selected the first time I, it yeah, wasn't surprising which is not me. uncommon no and and i'll i'll tell you dave lisma was the one who told me and we were at kennedy space center and dave, he, dave lisma by the way being one of my
1: class one class younger than me and twice my yeah. crewmate
0: Awesome guy. Yep, and he—he was—I can't remember if he was FCO, you know, flight crew operations at the time, or if he was—but senior was management, yeah, at the time, yeah, management within the within the astronaut office and flight ops. He was there for a flight readiness review for a launch that was coming up. I was at that same meeting, and so he like pulled me out and told me, you know, we're sorry, Nicole, we're not. And normally you get a phone call, so you can hide the like. You know but even though you don't think it might happen the tears are coming yeah, yeah. You know? and i'm like okay oh, you know? <laughs> and i didn't love i didn't blubber in front of him <laughs> or anything but but and i but i was thankful because i felt like i was given a really wonderful opportunity and this is my long way i guess of getting to the question about the the jsc transition is that he's like hey nicole we're not bringing you in this time but we'd really like you to consider coming to johnson space center uh, working with us out at, on, at Ellington Field, which was the airfield which all where all of the NASA airplanes are kept. We'd like you to fly as a flight engineer on the shuttle training aircraft, this amazing jet that was modified to train astronauts. Mod- to land modified fancy biz jet. Yeah. Yep. Mod- modified to drop like a rock. <laughs> yeah, ways you would never want
1: your airliner, to, you know, thrust yeah.
0: reversers deploying in flight and stuff like that. And we'd like you to come out and get some operations experience. <laughs> And I was, I mean, I was like, I I basically said yes right there. But I said, you know, we'll we'll talk. He said, let's get through this review for this flight. We'll call. We'll have a chat. And then I went into the bathroom and cried (laughs) in my stall, you know. (laughs) And, And at the same time, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you've just been offered the most incredible opportunity. I was a person who... Like we said, I moved through all these places at Kennedy Space Center, getting to see all the different kinds of things that were going on to get these vehicles ready to fly. And now I was being offered the opportunity to see it from a whole new perspective, working with the people that I think I wanna be a part of, right? Not to mention those amazing folks, incredible personality and professionalism out at, at Ellington Field and aircraft operations that I got to work with. And it just seemed like it couldn't get any better want to know how things fly, love flying. How could a job where your office is on an airport with these super cool airplanes that you get to fly in get any better? (laughs) That's pretty hard to beat. (laughs) I know, I know. And when I, you know, I know now, so this is one thing I will tell people when they ask about the whole application process and what goes down. I'm like, if they offer you a job- You take it. That's different than the astronaut job, you take it you absolutely take it. And when they offered it to me, I remember because Dave said, "Yeah, we'd like you to get some operations experience." And in my mind I'm thinking, "Okay, I've just been working for 10 years in shuttle operations. What the heck, you know, but yeah. it was crew operations, working in a complex, you know, vehicle doing things that were to see, am I going to be a somebody that people want to work with, you know, as a crew, and am I going to be competent enough to do it in a really dynamic, you know, and it's like, you know, was- not when
1: the airplane is in the hangar where there's, you know, maintenance right. operations going on, but now the, the aircraft is airborne. Uh, yep. And, you know, can you be part of helping to make that happen and then put it to good use in making sure yeah. it's actually effectively training people. Yeah.
0: yeah. It was so much fun. And that whole get, getting the job thing. It's funny because when I came into that position in 1998 in Houston, Steve Swanson had just gotten selected to be an astronaut. He was, I basically took his desk, his seat, you know, plopped into where he was. And then two years later, when I interviewed again and got selected in the class of 2000, I'm clearing out my desk and a young Shane Kimbrough comes in. and Who's aboard the International Space Station right now. Right. And it's so, you know, that whole, you take the job. They offer you a job, not the job you were applying for. (laughs) No, but
1: that's a signal... So that's a one or two people kind of offer that's made. And it's to the one or two that were not selected for some very subtle reason. Someone edged you out, not you were deficient. But on who knows what, not on something right. hugely substantive. But they know they, they kind of know they really want you in there eventually. And let's not let you escape yeah. somewhere.
0: <laughs> I'm so thankful for those those two years in that office. I feel like on a professional level with respect to being prepared to fly in space, it was it was just a, a wonderful thing. It, I don't think I could have gotten any better, like transition from KSC and what I experienced there and into this flight engineer job, you know, and not just seeing what goes on on the shuttle training aircraft, but all of the flight operations, yeah. things that were happening and and interacting with astronauts in a whole different way. And not to mention the the people, the, the friends that I have from that place that, some of them who were there at the very beginning of putting people on the moon and launching the very first astronauts and helping them figure out how they're going to fly in space. Awesome.
1: So the day finally does roll around. You came in the astronaut class of 2000 and, like everybody does, spent a couple of years in basically graduate school for astronauts, as I call it, called astronaut candidate status or ASCAN status. Uh, and finally, you are assigned to a mission. So we have to talk about your time in space. And there are a couple things in particular <laughs> I'd like to ask you about. One is, you know, my flights were early shuttle era, five, seven, ten days. Ten days was a long flight in the olden days of the space shuttle. You were in space for 104 days continuously. And I'm really curious, what's that like? What is different between the few days of a short space flight, five or 10 days, and staying there for months on end. What's that experience like?
0: Yeah, I think at a very basic level, there's this um, feeling that you get, and I don't know how many days it is into the flight. that's like, wow, I'm living here. It's
1: not a business trip. I'm living here.
0: Yeah, I'm living here. And, you know, you get into this cadence, kind of a rhythm you do like when you're at home, you know, like, how, how do I how am I living here? Not just this pace of I've got to get all these tasks done, which is still there. You know, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I've all I've heard this marathon versus sprint thing with with the station flights and the shuttle flights. And there's, there, is, there is a lot of truth in that. And yet on the station, it was, I always felt like I was chasing the red line of the timeline too, it, you know, yeah. just like I did on the shuttle flight. But I think that acceptance that like, wow, I'm living here. <laughs> it sounds so simple. It's kind of like, oh man, we live on a planet. You know, when you look out the window, <laughs> and it's this reality check of something you absolutely know, but it becomes, but it becomes um, real, real in a different way. Yeah. 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 And I I know that on shuttle flights, people did this too. You want to bring kind of the human into the human space flight, right? You want to bring part of who you are personally to that flight as well. And, you know, whether it's musical instruments or, you know, art or poetry, or even becoming a photographer, even if you weren't one before you flew in space, you want these human things to be part of a short or a long duration mission. Yeah. And it's just that on the long duration one, I think you get to acknowledge those a little bit more, maybe bring them into the, the day-to-day life there a little bit more than you have the opportunity on a, on a shorter flight, too.
1: Yeah, well, the cadence and schedule on station, as I understand it anyway, as would have to be the case, they keep humans effective over a long time. There's lots to do. You're always very busy. It's expensive, precious time to be in orbit, so it's used well. But there are some larger blocks of downtime, you know, a half day off or a day day that's, that's truly off. Uh, and you can ignore the timeline for 24 hours, which d- never happened on shuttle flights, of course. I know, yeah. never, yeah. But you did take, you took some watercolors to orbit with you and painted in yep. space. And when when did the artist in you really start to come out? And what made you take watercolors instead of a sketchbook or something?
0: yeah. Well, you know how all this stuff, even flying, I mean, all of it, just even the conversation, it comes down to the people, right? Kind of the people that encourage us that again, know maybe more about us than we know about ourselves sometimes. And I don't know, did you ever have the pleasure of meeting Mary Jane Anderson? No. So Mary Jane Anderson was one of the flight crew equipment people for us in the astronaut office, flight support people.
1: The folks that get your clothing and your eating Uh-oh, utensils everything.
0: and everything ready.
1: Yeah. Everything about what you will need <laughs> when you're in space. If you think about moving into the space station, they're basically the people that pack up all your goods <laughs> so that you've got what you need.
0: Yeah. you know what you need and they know how to kind of get out of you what you might know not know you need or what you might enjoy even when you're going there. And I have vivid memory of sitting with Mary Jane in you know, an office in our astronaut office, you know, suites and um, sitting there talking about this, this bag, we got this one bag of personal items to take up. And I mean, like, like the size of a small, I don't know, like bigger than a hygiene kit, but not, you know, like a small duffel, maybe. Yeah, you know? like a really small igloo cooler kind of size. Yeah, yeah. Not huge at all. You know, you're not packing your whole, you know, everything that everybody wants to give you. In this
1: maybe thing. 10 by 10 inches.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think like everybody, you know, I want pictures of my family and friends to take with me, my favorite book, maybe, the Sudoku puzzles, t-shirts from high school, my son's little stuffed animal dog that he wanted me to take with me, you know, things like that, where my motivation and most of it was like, how do you pack something that you're gonna share the experience with other people, right. you know, afterwards, or have them be part of the, the mission. And she just looked at me and she's like, you know, Nicole, we're gonna put all this stuff in here. And she said, but you're gonna be living there. And you are in your mind right now, you're worried about your checklists and doing all your tasks the way you need to do them and being technically competent with all of that's gonna go down, but you are gonna be living there and you will have free time. Please consider bringing something with you. Can't be huge. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta pass the, you know, the toxic tests and all of that. But please consider bringing something with you that you enjoy, that's part of you, that you enjoy doing here on Earth. In quiet time, yeah. Oh my God, I get goosebumps thinking about it. It's like that word, that gratitude, thankful word just comes up so many stages along the way and and in ways that you don't realize maybe are quite as impactful as they are when they're happening. And thank you, Mary Jane, because I would never have thought. To bring a little watercolor kit with me and think about painting in space if it hadn't been for her. Was that something you did for pastime on Earth? It is. I didn't have you know, in preparation in those couple years before flying in space, I didn't have a whole lot of time to do it in my in whatever well, free yes. time I had, you know, here on Earth. But I really loved it. I loved painting with all different kinds of mediums and doing mix and woodworking. And you know, I wasn't gonna be able to bring the saw in the wood, so you know, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. But I would not have thought about it on my yeah. own. And it is one of the most personally, like personal highlights for me of flying in space was the opportunity to do that, put in the human and human space flight thing.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, I've been reading uh, your book, Back to Earth. And oh, thank you. On, that, on that note, you said something that we've all experienced, but you said it so brilliantly. And I'm going to read your quote to you because it's right on the money. Okay, thank you. Here it is. No picture, no video, no conversation with others who have flown before can prepare you for what you will see with your own eyes and feel with your own soul. So tell me what you remember of your first glimpse of Earth from space.
0: Yeah, so my first glimpse was after floating up to the flight deck, because on my first flight I was... I kind of joke that I was cargo, although I did do a spacewalk with those guys. So I I wasn't totally cargo, but they were (laughs) the STS 128 crew, the discovery crew. They were taking me to um, station for this three month stay. So I was on the mid deck for the lower deck at launch. Yep. Lower below the guys uh, up on the flight deck.
1: No, really no window.
0: And uh, yeah, there's, there's not, you know, out the hatch. And I think it's blocked at that time. So you can't even see out that. So yeah after getting unstrapped and floating up to the flight deck, because I think, you know, you're, you're not necessarily elbowing your crewmates to have that opportunity, (laughs) but you, you want to get up there and get your face in front of a window. And so uh, it was one of the overhead windows. Like if if you looked at the top of your airplane, it would be a window, you know, that would be above your seat. Floating up and just, I don't remember where we were. There was water (laughs) as there, you know, most of the time is, but I remember being just completely captivated and surprised by how crystal clear everything was by about how earth looked like this glowing, iridescent, like translucent, brightest thing I'd ever seen with all the colors, you know, earth's to be splattered all over it. And set against the blackest black I had ever seen in my life. Like I couldn't, I like before that I hadn't even imagined colors and black to be that way. And it was I, again, you know, were we're doing the goosebumps stuff. <laughs> I don't think I was prepared for that. I had this, imag- you know, from all of what I'd seen and heard and watched and talked to people about, I had in my mind what I expected, and I expected it to be extraordinary. And I mean, I can't even reach my arm up high enough to how how overwhelmingly beautiful it was to me. And 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 in parallel with all that, I remember as I'm looking at this and being awed and you know, all that, I'm like, I am look at where I am <laughs> inside of this spaceship too. I'm like, I am floating inside of a space shuttle. A couple hundred miles this, above the earth. Yes, life-changing view. And I'm in space and there's a number of levels of that. I mean, perhaps you, you know, experience this too. It's like just the, Oh my gosh, I'm here. this is so cool. You know, you're floating, your body's getting used to that whole thing. And then you're like, I'm here. I survived that whole launch thing. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's a little tidbit of that in our heads, I think, as that's going on. And, and just so again, just so thankful for that, you know, to know I was in this, this very special place. And, and I think from that point on, I mean, it always surprised me that way. Every time I looked out the window, um, and something new and surprising as well, but I just felt like, man, this is something we, we are obligated to share in a meaningful way to find. It was like this call to action, like just glaring in the window at you to, um, to do something with it too, not just to pack it away in your memories of, Oh, this is what I experienced in space, but really to try to bring it to life somehow.
1: Yeah, and not just come home. I know a part of what I always felt was uh, I can come home and I can you know, show my vacation pictures over and over yeah. to countless audiences, and that's a form of sharing, what we saw. And I always just knew deeply, uh, yeah, it is some sharing, but that's, that's not enough the, the, to find some vehicle some activity by which you can share it, I can share it, uh, that has more substance than just you know look at my cool pictures. Right. Very cool.
0: And I, I mean, I, I, I followed your story after you know after leaving the astronaut office. I mean, I think about you know here we are, people that work for NASA. You go off and run NOAA. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a big deal, and and it's it's not just because it's this you know big well-respected or it's because of what is happening within that organization that so wonderfully pairs with the experience you had right that now you can develop it share it make real change based on it through a, a totally new platform Yeah, which is also based on something you love. Right. And I think that's what each of us need to find. And it's not just those of us that have flown in space. It's everyone. You know, we need to really acknowledge what we love and how we what our talents really are and how we can put them out in the world in a way that I don't know. You know, it seems kumbaya, but it's like that makes life better. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Um, There's
1: something else that your crew became famous for, uh, or infamous. I don't remember now if it was your first crew or your second crew. But you had this interesting intersection with Stephen Colbert. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about
0: that. <laughs> yeah, that was... That was and a- how it came about. <laughs> yeah, I still need, like, a personal introduction, you know, um, encounter with Stephen Colbert, too. I think that would be so much fun. As I was the first person to run on his treadmill in space but uh yeah you know so nasa was bringing up this new module to the to the space station that was going to be um hooked on and i think it was the unity might have been the unity module and or harmony i don't remember which one but uh they did a contest nasa held this contest this public contest for people to name this module And Stephen Colbert was all over it. And he rallied, you know, all of his (laughs) viewers and followers and stuff. And technically, they won the
1: competition. So we'll have
0: Harmony and Unity and
1: special and and Colbert. Colbert.
0: (laughs) Probably not. so NASA just wasn't going to go for that, right? They weren't going to go for the module Colbert. You know, though, when we look back on it now, I think they did a really cool thing. But we had this new treadmill. That was coming up to station. A really cool, and it's a great treadmill. And they offered the opportunity for the treadmill to be named after Colbert. And they made up an acronym even to (laughs) his name. It's the Combined Operating Load Bearing Exercise Resistance Treadmill or something like that. (laughs) And we have this sticker. We have this sticker like smack dab in the middle of the kind of the base of the treadmill. And it's kind of goofy. It's got the acronym around it. And then it's got this picture of kind of the profile of, of kind of a cartoon version of an astronaut running on the treadmill. <laughs> and this side glance of with, with Stephen Colbert's face making some like goofy, <laughs> I'm running on the treadmill thing. It's awesome. It's awesome. And, and we on the STS 133 crew, we delivered that treadmill to, was it 133? Yeah, 133. We delivered the treadmill to station. And no, that's a lie. It was 128. I'm a liar. Uh, yeah. First flight. <laughs> it's all no, a blur. None, none of blur. the rest of us will know. <laughs> I know. And so, yeah, because I'm imagining all of us installing it and then running on it afterwards, but it was so much fun. And it's, it's a necessary piece of equipment too, yes. you know, yeah. for us to keep our bones in good shape and be healthy enough to come back to earth afterwards. But it was so much fun. And we've got goofy videos of <laughs> running on it and floating on it and then actually really running on it. And Yeah, so I'm still waiting for my introduction to Stephen Colbert to tell him that I got to run on
1: story. Well, we'll, we'll let's make sure he hears this episode and, you know, maybe that Yeah, we'll forward it to him. (laughs) You know, there's another great example of, uh, be careful about the contest that you host. Yes. In Britain, they were launching, Uh the Institute of Oceanography was getting a new ship and they put a contest out to name the ship. Mm -hmm. And by a mile, the winning name was Bodie McBoatface. (laughs) And they decided, well, <laughs> may, well, maybe not. And so they named the ship Sir David Attenborough, which is much more fitting. But yes. it does have a tethered remotely operated vehicle that they use for scientific research, and they named that boating McBoatface. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, be careful about contests; they don't yeah. always work the way you were thinking. <laughs> Let's go back to art a little bit. I learned a new phrase, a new term, when I was reading *Back to Earth*: cosmic impressionism. Yes, which you say can also be simply called swirly space art. But as I thought about that some more, I came to a conclusion that I want to test the truth of, and you will probably know this. It seems to me that earthbound artists who imagine space tend towards the cosmic impressionism, the swirly stuffed galaxies, the cosmos, and... There are not a lot of people who've actually flown in space and then come back and become artists. Alan Bean, famously you, Mike Collins, quite artistic after he came back. And it seems people who've actually flown in space, their art always comes down to Earth. It's always about Earth. You can draw an exception for Alan Bean, but still his art is about the human experience of being on the moon. And that kind of fascinates me that if you've had the experience of going to space, what you're drawn back to is the places that are vital to humans, not the swirly stuff that's out there light years away. How does that strike you?
0: You know, for me, it's absolutely true. You know, if you look at Mike Collins' art, yeah, I think he has one piece of art that he calls this like snook launch one or something. And even that he's incorporating some like natural aspect of Earth into this launch pad with a the profile of a snook fish, (laughs) you know, everything else he does or did, sadly did was like Florida nature. Yep. You know, the, the world that surrounds him, right. Rediscovering. And this is how I like to think of like rediscovering the awe and wonder that's around us every Every day, day. Right. And Alan Bean, I think the same is true. Like you said, yes, he's, he beautifully portrayed these scenes on the moon and to share that experience. But was blessed with the experience to the opportunity to speak to him about his art. And I mean, he was an engineer when he did his art for the most part. Yes. But then he embellished with, you know, hammer prints from the hammer he had on the moon and, you know, boot marks on the boot imprints in the paint and little pieces of thread that had moon dust in them, you know, in the painting as well. But while you would look at the painting and there was this engineering sense to it and then sometimes fantastical with putting all three crew members on the moon instead of just the two right his inspiration was through the work of monet the colors that he put into his paintings were very much of earth they weren't of what he saw on the moon that was like the most special thing talking to him about his paintings was that he was inspired certainly by those experiences on the moon and wanting to share it but he was bringing into it this nature of earth the colors of earth into those paintings too and i think we are with without it's limitless the inspiration that i have i mean i could paint for the rest of my life based on what i saw through that window of the spaceship and and i have done some things that are of spacecraft and things like that but the what really kind of i associate with myself are the earth views are, you know, my kind of swirly interpretation, <laughs> of, you know, of what I saw at the window. And then this really wonderful gift that comes from that, which is whether somebody likes my art or not, you know, whether they think this painting, you know, that I did is, is good or not, I can engage them in a conversation about the backstory of it, of where I was, how I saw that, how I was inspired and oh my gosh, this this space station that we've been flying as this international community for over 20 years, and all of the work that we're doing there—that is ultimately about improving life on Earth—and here's why you should care. And they walk away with the app on their phone, spot the station because they now want, <laughs> they want to know more. They want to know they've more. Made some personal connection to it, and I think that's what's so great about art—is there's it, it's it's a universal communicator in some way. We can we can talk to anybody about anything if we're using art as a, as a platform to do that. Is that where the Space for Art idea came from? Kind of, I guess. Tell, tell us about Space for Art. Yeah, you know, again, the gratitude, thankful word. I was, you know, pursuing my own, you know, artwork to try and share this spaceflight experience on, in a couple of different ways. And one of my friends, after I had retired, shortly after retiring, one of my friends at at Johnson Space Center, who Gordon Andrews, who is uh, part of the International Space Station Communications Office. uh, He introduced me, I'll try to make the long story short. So he introduced me to an artist at MD Anderson Pediatric Cancer Center in Houston, an artist, Ian Sion, who had started their art and medicine program there. And Ian, always with the kids, would have them do their individual pieces of art. And then he would create some you know, large scale kind of community project out of it. Um, Akoa the dragon, Akoa the flying dragon, which is like this 25 foot long by 10 foot wide by 15 foot tall dragon where every scale of the dragon is made out of one of the kids piece of artwork. It's just- Oh, cool. It's gorgeous and all these different kinds of, so he had come to the space space center wanting to do something uh, spacey with the kids. And actually what he he proposed was that he should be the artist in residence on the space station and then he could get the kids engaged <laughs> that way, right? And I'm like, good nice try, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> no one's ever tried that one before, right? Oh yes, they have, and, but that's yeah, all I know. right. And I'm like, I'm like, my <laughs> hand is up for that too. But um, but we came down to spacesuits and then started creating these art spacesuits from the kids' artwork. And I just got invited into this because I was doing art after and wouldn't it be fun to have an astronaut who does art as part of this project and it has just grown in such an amazing way people who have participated the kids their families other astronauts engineers they want to participate in it and we cool. built these art spacesuits and we haven't just built them but i'll see dover the space the suits, company that makes the NASA space, suit space suits. Yeah. Yep. that made the spacesuit that we walked in space with has volunteered since the very beginning with their talent to quilt together these individual pieces of kids' artwork into these just stunning art space suits. And I can tell you, I don't know if you're one of them, but every other astronaut that has been involved or has seen these suits, it's like, so I'll see Dover, why can't my suit (laughs) be colorful like that? Why do I just have to white suit with a stripe on it, you know? And, And we're working towards some of that, actually, just some like personal embellishment that crew might be able to do. But it's been awesome. I mean, our motto is that we're uniting a planetary community of children through the awe and wonder of space exploration and the healing power of art. And I feel like While I was pursuing my own art as this way to communicate the experience, I found my next calling through this. Like this is why I went to space. So I could do this work with these kids and we're working with kids all over the world now. And in these places that you hope is the worst place they ever, ever have to be in their lives, right? Yeah, in a children's cancer ward. Yeah, or a refugee center or, you know, going through treatment somewhere else. Or even during this time of COVID, being isolated in ways that they'd never had to experience before. And I am in awe. I mean, I, I watched these kids as we're painting with them in this place, in a hospital. You know, you don't want them there. And yet they come in and they sit up straighter they're excited to just talk about space they're not just talking about space though but they're they're talking about their future outside of the hospital and what they want to do and how just this painting and space has inspired them and and then they share things with you that are just i mean it's like beyond their years wisdom to hear out of you know, these young kids going through these things, you know, to kind of extreme stuff, like how it parallels what we go through as astronauts in space and them making that connection of, yeah, you know, Miss Nicole, you know, what you do in space as an astronaut, that's a lot like what I'm going through here in the hospital. Wow. (laughs) You know, and just sitting, having to like keep the smile and think how in the world can this young girl be comparing these two things? And then she just like matter of factly goes on, keeps painting. And she's like, yeah, you know, you don't get to eat the same kind of food. Uh, You know, you can't see your mommy and daddy and friends the same way. You can't just go outside anytime you want. Your body's changing. They're doing all kinds of tests on you. I think there's radiation and just like, (laughs) holy moly. (laughs) She's right. (laughs) So perfect. And it made me realize these things that we were doing with them in this hospital setting in one way or another, it's the same kind of thing we're going to have to do for our colleagues that are going to go travel to Mars and lose sight of Earth out the window at some point, you know, in a relatively small spaceship, you know, how do we keep this kind of energy, this kind of positive human thing going? Now, I'm I'm actually hopeful it's the Star Trek holodeck, but, you know, <laughs> we'll see.
1: <laughs> I love it.
0: I, I want you to say
1: once more the sort of mission statement of space for art. It was so eloquent
0: (laughs) oh yeah the we've we've come up with this It, it is i guess our mission statement our motto for the the space for art foundation is that we are uniting a planetary community of children through the awe and wonder of space exploration and the healing power of art brilliant and
1: fabulously important work and
0: uh we are all very
1: lucky that you made your way from getting space shuttles ready to fly, to bringing the experience of space and everything it means for humanity back to Earth in such fabulous ways. The artistic astronaut, Miss Nicole.
0: So good to talk to you. You too. Thanks so much for joining me
1: on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to
0: kathysullivanexplorers.com.